Well, good evening, uh, everyone, and welcome to the uh, LSE. Um, I'm absolutely delighted uh, to see you here to uh, hear one uh, of the Legal Biographies Project's uh, series of interviews uh, with members of the judiciary. And we're very, very fortunate, uh, uh, very honoured indeed tonight to have the Lord Chief Justice, Lord Thomas, uh, with us. Um, normally speaking, the person introducing the event will say one or two words about the, uh, uh, the main person speaking, but of course um, I will not uh, do this because you will hear in the next hour and a half a great deal about uh, Lord Thomas's uh, life and career. But I will introduce uh, Sir Ross Cranston, who is going to be conducting uh, the uh, interview. Um, Sir Ross, uh, Mr Justice Cranston is uh, a judge uh, in the Queen's Bench Division, but in these quarters, uh, we still know him as Professor Rod, Ross Cranston, uh, who was a uh, Castle Professor here in the 1990s uh, and Professor again uh, in the Law Department from 2005 to 2007. Uh, he left uh, for a brief period in between uh, to do uh, a slightly different job, to be an MP and Solicitor General, uh, and he left us to do another uh, non-academic job of some considerable importance. We are very um, honoured that Sir Ross has uh, agreed to uh, conduct this interview, um, and so without any further ado, I will hand over to the <coughs> evening's events. Well, thanks very much, Michael. I normally leave to avoid becoming head of department. Um, so, uh, you are Lord Thomas. Uh, you are Lord Thomas of Cumgeath, which is a village um, at the top of one of the Welsh valleys, north of Swansea, on the edge of the Brecon Beacons. So, you're Welsh, and I think your parents spoke Welsh, and you spoke Welsh when you were young. Correct. Uh, yeah, I spoke Welsh really almost the full time until I was about three or four. And then uh, I went to school and more and more began to speak English. And so though I understand a lot of Welsh, uh, my Welsh speaking is actually fairly rusty. I don't get as... I haven't taken the time, I should say, uh, to spend as much time speaking Welsh as I should do. Say something in Welsh to them <laughs> and translate it for them. Which is good afternoon. I'm very glad to speak to you all uh, this evening. Um, Professor Raymond Williams' novel, Border Country, is about a Welsh boy growing up on the, the Welsh borders north of the valleys in the 1930s, and it's partly about Will, the main character, who and his relationship with his father, and then he goes back when he's an academic, he goes back to the valleys to see his father die, and I'll come back to that, but one of the choices he had to make as a boy was church over chapel. And I'm just wondering, were you church or chapel? Church. The reason was relatively simple. My father was a, a lay reader in the Church of Wales, in church in Wales, uh, the church in Wales uh, had been disestablished by Lloyd George and its constitution had been written by uh, three uh, great uh, lawyers, uh, Eldon Banks, uh, Lord Atkin of Aberduffy and, Lord, and Viscount Sankey. And so uh, the law had sunk into the church in Wales in a very big way. My father had been a lay reader for many years and so church was where we went to. But why the question church and chapel probably needs a bit of an explanation. 
Um, because of the disestablishment of the church in uh, 1922, the, there was quite a sharp divide between church and chapel, and the church had had to re-establish itself, and the chapels were very much more powerful. But towards the, the time of my childhood, and certainly thereafter, the chapels have been in very substantial decline, but they were very different, and there were very many different kinds of chapel. Uh, in each village, you'd have one church and about six or seven different types of chapel. And it was, uh, they were much, the chapels were much more informal, uh, probably much more, no, they were both pretty well-speaking, but they all had their very narrow and doctrinal differences. Mm. I'm sorry if you asked me to what the differences were. I don't think I'd do very well in the exam on comparative theology of the various chapels. Kamagayath, <laughs> um, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, after some tutoring, I have to say, was a mining village when you grew up. There was a pit... Um, and, of course, in the 50s, the miners were much better off than they had been in the 1920s and 30s. But did that have any influence, being in a mining village, seeing the miners? I think it had a number of influences. First, there was still the great tradition of education. And the last thing anyone who's, who had children wanted their uh, children to do was to go to the mines. And therefore, if you could... Uh, find them a job through teaching and good education, and education was hugely important. Secondly, there was the terrible legacy of the industrial diseases. A lot of people had pneumoconiosis, so I grew up with people who one really saw in real life what industrial disease does to someone. Thirdly, the mines were on the beginning of their decline. Cumgeath um, and Astragalus and its surrounding area was an area where they were beginning to bring in factories. About in the early 1950s, they established a watch-making factory to try and make sure the skills that had been uh, so evident in the coal industry were kept. And um, that, probably over the decades, was not very successful. So mining was in decline, but you still saw it all around you. And in the period and before the Aberfan disaster, uh, there were tips to remind you everywhere. And I had the benefit. I went down several mines when I was sort of a late, um, you know, early teens, late teens. Mm. So I saw what they were like firsthand. And yeah. so it was a very different environment to an environment that I'd grown up in, either here or in a, an yeah. English country village. Now, you mentioned the, the town um, next to your village, as Tradagonus. And that's where your father practised as a solicitor, mm -hmm. um, sometimes in partnership, sometimes by himself. But he wasn't just a solicitor because he had all sorts of additional jobs. Mm -hmm. um, he, well, his principal uh, work was as a, as a solicitor. He, um, for most of my life, had a partner who, who worked primarily in the office in Brecon, which was about 25 miles away, between Astrid Gunlice, which was in the south end of Breconshire, as it then was, or Powys, as it now is. And Brecon is about 25 miles, mostly of either farming or mountain. And they practised, the practice extended between the two, two places. My father's practice was very broad. He did almost everything. He probably would be regarded today as the bane of the law society in that he did litigation. Uh, he did virtually everything. And I remember him telling me that during the Spanish Civil War, um, various people would come in and, and, and seek advice as to whether they should go off and fight in Spain. 
And because you had to be examined on the whole of the law, he was fairly familiar with most things. But he also then was appointed to a number of jobs. He was clerk to the justices. He was the coroner. That was not a good thing to be the son of, because when I learned to drive, every corner we went round, he told me to slow down because there'd been a death or something there. And I made the terrible... And when I was five, I remember... Or no, it must have been... When I was seven, I was asked what PM meant. And, of course, any normal person would, would reply um, uh, <coughs> afternoon or post-meridian. I replied post-mortem because the house was constantly... Um, you know, one had telephone calls virtually all the time. And I always remember my father talking about PMs. He was also the registrar for birth, deaths and marriages, and he was also the undersheriff. So he had a very diverse life in the law. And so I grew up seeing all of that, practiced from a small office on top of a grocer's shop, none of this um, with precipitously steep stairs and none of the um, kind of thing you see in the city these days. It was very much a sort of old-fashioned lawyer's office with deed boxes, um, rickety old chairs. Uh, It was um, quite Mm. different. Yeah. I mean, did that have any influence on you in terms of wanting to follow in his footsteps as a lawyer? I think he felt very much that... Uh, I think he was very keen that I should read law, but with the idea, and I can say this safely here, of becoming an academic, um, he thought this was a much more relaxed lifestyle. Uh, I'm not sure that he was right about that in hindsight, but certainly he was very keen that I should do that. He had one or two friends who who taught law in Wales, um, and he thought this would be a much better life than being the life of a sort of... uh, almost a sole practitioner in a, a relatively small town uh, doing absolutely everything. What about your mother? Um, Say something about her. My mother was a domestic science teacher when my father married her. He re- married quite late in life, and they married at the beginning of the war. And he was too old, he was too young to fight in the First World War and too old to fight in the Second World War. And when everyone went off, he gradually became the clerk to the justices and virtually everything else to the whole of the era of Brackenshire. And my mother uh, um, came to work with him. And so gradually she moved into effectively being what you today call a legal executive and did a a huge and gradually absorbed almost the full range of work of conveyancing, probate, um, that sort of thing, until she um, retired at the age of uh, 81. Um, you went to the local village school, mm-hmm. um, but then you were sent away to boarding school in England. Mm-hmm. Was that like being sent to a foreign country? I'm not, I wouldn't entirely describe it as necessarily foreign. It was extremely different coming from a small village in Wales to a prep school in Harrow. And um, one got used to things I'd never seen before, like the awful fogs of the 1950s, uh, to having to make, which I was allowed to do in those days, from about the age of nine or ten, I was allowed to travel on the train to London on my own, which I don't think anyone would allow you to do these days. Um, And so, and one, therefore, I grew up, a lot of my time was, uh, was spent in in essentially what you would call London um, for until I was 13. But I used to go home every holidays. And um, a boarding school life for a 7- to 13-year-old uh, was a very strange thing. I've always thought the English were crackers doing that, but anyhow. 
sending, sending their kids off at the age of seven. Welsh for crackers, but <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll confine it to the English. Um, you eventually go to rugby, mm-hmm. um, rugby school in 1961. I happen to have the 1964 list. Yes, <laughs> and you're there, of course. Um, you're in uh, Whit, Whitlaw House. Whitelaw. Mm-hmm. Whitelaw. You're a scholar. Mm-hmm. You've won two divinity prizes. You've won a form prize. Your tutor is A.R. Grant. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did you like it? It was a very interesting school. It had some terrible problems, but contemporaneous to that, society, to that time. First of all, there was still quite a strong fagging system. And um, I'll spend a moment, when I went to America thereafter, I had to explain what I, I got some very odd looks when I said I was a fag. Uh, <laughs> um, but they, and so much of the tradition of the 19th and early 20th centuries had survived. There, another tradition that had survived was specialising at a young age. I uh, ceased really to do anything other than my A-level subjects at the age of 14 and a half. And so I learned very little science. The only science I learned was when I was in the sixth form. And the only thing I really remember from it was my science teacher saying, handing round uh, isotopes and saying, now don't put one of these in your pocket and come back 20 years later and complain you can't have any children. And, and, and so one, one never, I never really had a proper scientific education. Uh, the, great, the advantage of it was that one could specialise, and I specialised in doing three things. I did Latin, Greek, and history. And so you could do it to a very great depth. And the school also had time. And I'll never forget this. There was um, a wonderful master who taught one the architectural, his, architectural history of Europe together with the history of painting. And so one spent a great deal of time... Um, one had the opportunity to do that, which I don't think one would have ordinarily got. And I've always thought it invaluable because one, one, can wonder, one actually had a continuum of architectural and art history as well as a continuum of ordinary history because I was brought up in the days where um, there was a great big green book called Townsend Warner's History of England, I think it was called, or something like that. And it had, you know, you started with the Anglo-Saxons and you finished at the First World War and you went through the whole thing. So that was very good about it. The school was, I think, relatively... Uh, it was changing a lot when I was there. And as we moved into the sort of mid-60s, all the traditions started to break down. Just, just bring it, yes. All the traditions started to break down, and in particular, um, the sort of traditional bonds uh, uh, fell apart. It was very well illustrated in a, in a film called If that Lindsay Anderson made, and one of my friends was, was one of the actors. And it did show a sort of change. The cadet force was a very powerful institution when I arrived, but by the time I was leaving, it had declined Um, The school was um, pretty keen on sport, obviously, particularly rugby, um, um, and it had pretty good facilities. And so on the whole, I think it was a a very liberal school. It had some excellent masters, particularly in the subjects I did. And um, on the whole, it was quite a, a relatively happy school. 
There were obvious disadvantages. It was a single-sex school at that stage, which wasn't terribly sensible. Um, and that didn't change until the mid-1970s. And I certainly felt that the education I had in history, and it's probably what influenced me not a dirted university, is that I had, it, I had three, three years in the sixth form and one year when I was really allowed to do what I wanted mm. uh, in the sixth form in, in history. So I had a sort of quasi-university education, which you wouldn't get these days. You're admitted to read law in Cambridge. Um, I'll come to that. But after you are admitted, um, you then have time to go to India and you spend nine months in India. I think you were 18 at the time. Um, and you go to a leading Indian public school, Mayo College in Rajasthan. Um, can you tell us about that? It was a very odd experience. I'd never been in an aeroplane until I flew to Marseille to catch a ship to India because they still had passenger ships that went through the Suez Canal. And I had been probably young and somewhat reckless, said I wanted to travel steerage. And someone told my father, on no account must he do that. And I think that was very good advice because it was pretty rough. I remember on Christmas Day they had a bottle fight uh, which was something a sheltered young man hadn't, wasn't then used to. Um, and we had a trip out through the Suez Canal. I remember going to Aden, which was then the, the, under the British Emergency, and we landed in Bombay. And then I saw India for the first time. The school was wonderful. Um, it, its headmaster had been someone who'd come out to India in the late 1930s and stayed and he was, he was probably the last of the great Anglo, Anglo-Indian um, headmasters. And he knew almost everyone in India. Um, where, when he would go travelling with him, he, he, he would know, say, the Prime Minister of Sikkim, or he'd know the general commanding the troops there. If he went to Kashmir, he knew the, um, the, the governor of Kashmir. And he knew all the local princes, because the school had been founded to educate the sons of the princes of Rajasthan. And so it had marvellous architecture, and we had marvellous visitors. And it was my... I think there were two things that I found out about that I really enjoyed. One was teaching, which I'd never done before, and one would never be allowed again to do that these days. And secondly, what was interesting was the ability to go to villages with, with the, the, the students would say, would you take us out for a picnic? And they all spoke very fluent um, local dialects. And so you could go and, to a village and converse with almost anyone you wanted with these you know, sort of 10-, 12-year-olds as interpreters. It was, it was an amazing experience. And um, I saw an awful lot of, of village life as well as political life in India, and it was an amazing privilege. And what, you spent about eight or nine months there? I, spent, you... I, I arrived there in uh, just... Well, I went... I finished in, in rugby in December and then crossed the, uh, down to Marseille in, uh, just before Christmas and was there until uh, late September, mm. just a few weeks, a couple of weeks before going up to university. Yeah. So you come back. Now, you had not originally wanted to do law. You wanted to do economics. Mm-hmm. Why was that? Uh, partly probably because I was told I ought to read law and um, wanted m- myself to do it. And I'd always been quite interested in economics, partly influenced, I think, by the books Christopher Hill had written about the Cromwellian period and how um, I was sort of influenced partly by a sort of Marxist view of history. 
Um, and so I found that, and so I, that's what I wanted to do, and it was possible at, those, at that stage maybe to do a year or two of economics before turning to law. But I was persuaded that, um, by my tutor there that this would not be a good idea, so I decided to read law. I think you've told me in the past that uh, there were lots of spaces for lawyers. I you didn't have to compete. They this, actually grabbed you, as it were, because they wanted law students. This is quite unlike some of the students, some of the experiences that students face today. Uh, it was very unusual. Um, when I was in the sixth form at, uh, at rugby, I was asked. Uh, Downing College was running an event, and they got pe- um, boys and girls from all over um, the UK up to try and persuade people to read law. Um, it is, I know you think it unbelievable, but it's explicable for two reasons, I think. First of all, the bar had undergone a tremendous crisis in the 90, uh, late 1950s, early 1960s. A lot of very able people who came to my subsequent chambers came there and found they couldn't make a living after about six or seven years and left. And news eventually gets back to universities that actually becoming a lawyer is not a ticket to money. And secondly, I think things were much tougher in the solicitors. There was still the 20 partner rule. Firms were tiny in comparison to what they are today. And the law was, you didn't make more money becoming a lawyer than you did becoming a teacher or a university lecturer or anything. It was not the well-paid profession it is now. So they were finding difficulty in getting people to read law. And so they had us all up, and when I was at dining, as um, uh, my father had known someone from a neighbouring village in Wales who was a tutor at Trinity Hall, he uh, asked me to come down, and they sort of looked at one, as one did those days, and uh, I got offered a place, which was very nice. Um, it, uh, things have changed slightly. Yeah, I know that um, John Collier, who's some of the older older members of the audience who are in law will know through his work on conflict of laws uh, he was a favourite tutor of yours but um, what was your experience in Cambridge? Were there particular tutors Uh, great law academics that influenced you? Yes, I think John Collier influenced me enormously but one of the things that struck me was one of the um, at that time one of the sort of very distinguished uh, alumni was Lee Kuan Yew, who he still is a distinguished alumni. I remember him coming to lunch one day, and the people that he really wanted to see, and I saw this from other judges who'd left my college, where they really wanted to see not the people who'd written a lot of academic treatises, but people who'd been good tutors, actually who'd looked after people and taught them. And I was actually very fortunate. One was the friend of, of um, my father's from a neighbouring village, um, who uh, chapeled um, Dr. Ellis Lewis, who wrote Winfield on Tort, but he was primarily someone who looked after people. And then in, um, in Downing, there was a very great uh, tutor who I was very friendly with, John Hopkins. And they were that sort of... Um, they were those, the people who actually looked after you. But I was also very fortunate. In criminal law, I, um, I was taught by two completely... Uh, two of the great scholars of their age. One was uh, the late Professor Sir John Smith, who came and lectured the, the, the initial stages of what I think became Smith and Hogan. But I was tutored by J.W. Cecil Turner, who was the person who wrote um, the last two great old care books on crime, Russell on crime and Kenny on crime. And they had completely different views about most areas of the criminal law. And so that was, that was very interesting. And there was some very... I was taught by Tony Weir and uh, uh, Professor Hansen um, on 
complex of laws and on contract and tort too, which was the first thing, I, first time in my life I came across bills of lading, which became slightly more familiar later. Now, I was very, very lucky. And then towards the end of my time, oh, no, while I was there also, there was Anthony Bradley, who was a professor, who was a tutor at Trinity Hall, and who was constitutional law and sort of taught me the little bit of constitutional law I sort of picked up. And um, there came subsequently to be a tutor there was Anthony Dix, who'd come back from Hong Kong. And Amber Williams? No, I was never taught by him. Mm. And then there was, you know, those are the people I saw the most and was tutored by the most. And I was taught then in a number of different colleges as well. Um, a marvellous man who taught me evidence at Pembroke. Um, and I was taught landlord at Selwyn. It was, it, it, I was very, very well taught. And the supervision system was superb. Mm. So I thought I, it was... Um, I think it was the days when, you were, when people, I think, would say you could no longer get away with being, uh, you know, getting a third. You had to actually work and do, get a proper degree. I think the, that was, this was and, and nothing used to annoy John Collier more than someone coming back and saying, oh, don't worry, I got a fourth, and look where I've got now, and a wealthy silk, or I got to the Court of Appeal. That was very much disapproved of, and I think rightly disapproved of. Mm. You graduate in 1969, then you do your bar exams in six weeks, cramming, um, something I'm familiar with, um, but unlike today, you could do that. Uh, but instead of going to practice, you go off to Chicago mm -hmm. as a Commonwealth Fellow and you obtain a JD, mm -hmm. which is the sort of equivalent at that stage to an LLM. Why did you do that? No, I think I probably felt that I ought to do something before settling down to practice, partly because it was, a, it was a, uh, an opportunity that was available. I was very lucky. Those were the days when I think I had a scholarship that, was, that paid my fees and gave me $2,500, and on that you could buy a red beetle, which I did with a friend, uh, travel around the States, and actually you had the opportunity to learn a tremendous amount. And... I remember Anthony Dix telling me that actually um, he'd been to Chicago uh, quite a lot. And he said, well, that's a city you should go to because things happened there. And actually they had. Um, there was the famous Chicago Convention of 1968 and, the after, and also the tremendous upsurge in um, political activity among students because of the Vietnam War. And then there was a trial before a certain Judge Hoffman, who obviously is no relation, um, but who... Uh, tried those who'd been indicted for causing the riots during the Democratic Convention in Chicago. And he, going to his courtroom, actually has influenced me a lot in, in the sense that one saw how not to conduct a trial. He ended up by essentially holding the two lawyers for the defendants in contempt and jailing them at the end of the trial. And he also had a black defendant who um, I think was probably being pretty difficult, but he had him in the courtroom, strapped, bound and gagged uh, uh, while he tried him. And I think seeing something like that actually does influence one. Mm -hmm. But the great thing about Chicago also was it had tremendous teachers of law. Um, well, it was the start of the law and economics movement, wasn't it, with mm -hmm. Richard Posner and people like that? I was Coase, who, who was here at the LSE before he went off to the States. No, I was taught by Posner. Um, he was then a young, rather slender gentleman who'd just come from Harvard. 
Uh, and it was, you know, very, very thought-provoking. And then I had um, Aaron Director who, and, the, and Ronald Coase, and they taught a course of law and economics. So I eventually got back what I'd wanted to do, which was to learn some economics. Um, and then I had a very good professor of procedural law uh, who was, in a way, a bit frightening because he would say uh, he would teach by the traditional Socratic method, and you'd have to read a case beforehand and then he would pick on people uh, in the... He'd just say, stand up before a class of 150 and then take you through cases, one after the... until he could make you or break you, one or the other. And that was, I think, probably a rather frightening but quite a good discipline. And then there was um, a wonderful scholar called Grant Gilmore who conducted seminars in, in legal history, which is where I started to learn a bit about legal history. So I was very, very lucky. And I was also allowed to do, um, because the dean of the law school was uh, um, uh, from Germany called Gerhard Kasper, who went on to be president of Stanford. And he took the view that if you were here, you ought to learn a bit of law, but you ought to do some other things. So I did a course in contemporary US politics uh, as well. So it was was a wonderful liberal education um, with a bit of law in it as well. But you you, you were... Thinking of practicing, you, this wasn't because you wanted to be an academic. No. Nope. What your father wanted, but you... I then decided I was going to practice, hence the bar exams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, of course, uh, in terms of your personal life, you met your wife of over 40 years, who was another law student at Chicago. Yes, because um, <coughs> she was in her second year and had to spend three years doing a law degree, uh, I don't think she's ever forgiven me for the fact I got the same degree in one year uh, because that was the deal under which you got a, um, this, uh, this arrangement. And so we met there and we got married a couple of years after I came back. Well, she, she'd finished her degree and uh, we then got married here and we've lived here 41 and a half years, if I've got it right. Nearly 42. 42 in January, I'm told. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I have to get these things slightly wrong. Um, so you, you return to London. You're going to practice in London. You're not going to practice in Wales. No, that, well, that wasn't necessarily the case. I, when I came back, um, again, uh, I, w- w- I went to a chambers in London, which had a significant Welsh base. And there I started off as a pupil, and, and my practice might have been different. But that, no, it, it was a possibility I might have gone back to Wales. But I didn't. That was Farrah's building. That was Farrah's building, yeah. And, but then you went to what is now Essex Court Chambers mm-hmm. for Essex Court. How, how did that happen? I must As say... Again, I mean, in terms of the experience today, there's a huge struggle in terms of getting pupillage and getting tenancies. Well, what happened... Uh, when I came back from America, um, I went and became a marshal to um, probably one of the best criminal judge, trial judges this country's ever seen, uh, uh, Mr Justice Cusack. And um, being a marshal, uh, essentially those days, was quite different to what it is now. You would travel with the judge as he went round on a circuit, and we went round Wales on the penultimate circuit before it was shut down. And so you saw an awful lot of the judge. It was difficult for him to go back to London, so I had to spend weekends with him. 
so, um, there we, we visited towns in which there was no work, so he would, as he didn't drive, I sometimes had to drive him. Um, and um, so I saw a lot of him, and on, at one particular lodgings, he had a party, uh, and one of the people who came uh, was a young, then, junior, but who was in commercial chambers in London. And as a result of meeting him, I, decided, I eventually got offered a pupillage there, and so practice in Wales went, and becoming commercial lawyer happened. And um, it was just a sort of, that was a, like a lot of things in life, it was chance. Mm. Otherwise, my practice would have been completely different. Yeah. Um, for Essex, uh, the court uh, had a galaxy of commercial law talent. Uh, uh, Michael Carr, Lord Justice Carr had just left, I think, or just left after you arrived. Lord Mustel, um, uh, Anthony Evans, later Lord Justice Evans, uh, Lord, Lord Saville. Um, and Lord Stain was an old And Johann Stain. And in fact, the then professor, Castle professor here, um, Bill Wedderburn, yep. was also there. Mm-hmm. Quite senior on the list, I see. Uh, but, I mean, how, how did you start off? Was there lots of work? Did you immediately go off and do great trials in the commercial court in shipping and insurance? No. Um, I did two things. I did three things, actually. First of all, one of my cousins was a solicitor in Wales and would send me the odd case, or one of her partners would. I'm probably, I was the last person, certainly in my chambers, who'd ever addressed a jury defending a criminal. That, uh, and I had one particularly good client who retained me on at least three or four occasions, one of which was he was charged um, with, with receiving a box of broken Marley tiles and receiving uh, a mechanical digger. Uh, and, uh, that, and I did sort of that was the level of crime I did. It was all very low grade. So that was, so I had some experience of doing crime. I then dabbled, uh, and for the first, and I sort of kept going for the first two, three years of my life by really deviling for people like Michael Mustill, which was an amazing experience. It was the best tuition I probably ever had. Um, uh, I then lived off um, my wife's earnings, perfectly legal earnings, I will add, um, and because she came back here and practiced as a lawyer. And uh, I then taught a bit as well, because there was, I think my first year, uh, I probably just about earned enough to pay the rent, and the second year, probably not enough to pay the rent. And then I taught a bit. I did some teaching at the Central London Poly, as it then was, the University of Westminster, and I weekended in Cambridge. And for that, you got paid £4 an hour. I remember that very distinctly. Uh, both places, I think, paid about the same. Cambridge is more expensive because you had to pay to travel there. Um, and so it was a very, very different environment um, to what you had today because the, the commercial bar was still very tough going um, to start with. And it was the generosity of Michael Mustill that actually kept uh, my wife's hard work that enabled us to survive. And you did some work in... A law centre, is that right? Yep. I, um, I went um, to um, one... We lived in Islington before we were... I lived with, a, with three or four people from Cambridge, and we lived in Islington, and one of my colleagues and I decided we ought to try and learn something about 
non-commercial law. And so we went to the Islington Legal Advice Centre and sort of started to... I remember seeing Lord, the future Lord Justice Mummery. And um, he, was, uh, he was one of the advisers there. And actually, it was quite an interesting lot. There were two competition lawyers who probably weren't there and very well known. One was Sir Christopher Bellamy, and the other was Graham Child. And with this strange group of people, and, um, uh, and there was Anthony Mann, was Justice Mann. All of us, you know, not uh, what we would call probably typical in practicing the kind of work we did, but it was wonderful. I did a lot of landlord and tenant, a bit of uh, unfair dismissal, which was coming in, uh, quite a lot of housing law. And I did this until I took silk. And it was quite a good thing to do. Mm-hmm. As a junior, you appeared in court. You appeared a couple of times before Lord Denny, who's well, well known as a leading judge. Uh, what was your experience? I did two cases. I mean, I did a lot of cases where I was led by either people like Robert Goff, Bob McGrindle, Michael Mustill in front of him. But I did two cases uh, that I can remember on my own. And the curious thing when you were there on your own is he would, you get up, and then he would take, there was a law list, a sort of um, red volume that was published at those times, and you would see them taking it out, flicking over the pages, looking you up to see where you came from, and then putting it back again. And it was a very odd experience. He was tremendously nice. And um, I did, and the, the cases I did were both shipping cases. Um, uh, against people I knew well because the, bar, the commercial bar was relatively small and it was a great privilege to actually do I did a couple of cases on my own in front of him it was wonderful to see the way he dealt with litigants in person how he'd say as they made an argument would say yes, yes, yes and they thought they'd all known terribly well and then the moment they sat down the judgment would deliver dismissing every point they made <laughs> it was quite a contrast to um, John McGore who so another commercial lawyer at the time who used to get very cross with them and snap his pencil. And the, the proceedings there took much longer. All the litigants in person went away very unhappy. And um, the result was really rather dismal. And so there was this great contrast between someone who knew how to handle litigants in person and someone who didn't. You, you, you built up your commercial practice, and in 1984 you become a QC at quite a young age, 36, um, did that make any practice uh, any difference in the sort of practice you had? Uh, um, yes. Um, if you're a commercial lawyer, you do tend to, your work is driven by the markets. And whereas in the first sort of eight years, nine years of my practice, the uh, shipping market had been very busy, and so I, almost all the work I did was shipping, a bit of banking. Uh, around about 1976, 77, things started to go wrong in Lloyd's of London and in the London insurance market. And so I developed, by a series of coincidences, quite a, not quite a large practice in that area. And in 1982, um, Lloyd's faced its massive crisis. And so I was very lucky in that I started really quite busily off in silk with a huge amount of reinsurance and London market work. And so it, 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 I was just very, very lucky in that there was a subject about which I knew a great deal about there was a great deal of work in it, and that was just luck. Mm. You did a, a major inquiry under the Companies Act into Mirror Newspapers and Robert Maxwell, um, and that eventually led to a, a report. Um, do you want to tell us anything about that? 
Uh, was that full time, or were you doing that part time? No, while you it were was practicing? no, it was it was a strange. No, you had to. The first year was basically full time. It was. Um, it probably has influenced my views about inquiries quite substantially. I think it is a very efficient way to conduct an inquiry because it was large. It was entirely inquisitorial. Lawyers were only allowed to come and be with their clients. They weren't allowed to say anything unless to clarify. And so you did the interrogation yourself. Um, you had a pretty good staff to put the stuff together. And it was very hard work for about a year. And then it stopped because the police um, and the uh, <coughs> SFA decided to prosecute. And so the thing came to a shuddering halt while the prosecution started. And then there were tremendous difficulties in sorting out how we could continue and the prosecutions had failed. And so it took 10 years, but it was only really work at the beginning and work at the end. Um, and I also, it's probably influenced me in that I was very, working with an expert accountant, um, a gentleman called Ray Turner, um, showed the great value of, of a tribunal that, and I was influenced partly because I sat quite a lot as an arbitrator in commercial matters, that a judge together with someone who is a professional makes a very good tribunal because you can, if, particularly if you're judging someone's credibility or judging their practice, you've got someone you can talk to who knows more about it than any expert evidence you're likely to get. What was the upshot of the report? Um, we, it was quite interesting. We went into quite a lot of the practices that came, and one of the areas we commented on was um, short selling by one of the major investment banks, because that was uh, something that was sort of forgotten about until relatively recently. Uh, we looked at how you know what, how you how you should have a proper independent board, and we made a lot of recommendations as to what should be done. I am afraid most of them have never been done, or they're being started to be done, such as rotation of auditors, which was a problem. How you can you know how you should have non-executives on a board, um, and. Uh, <clears throat> how you should how what corporate structures, if any, will ever work if you have someone who has a dominant personality. It, was, it, was, um, I, it, was, it took me into areas of law I'd never done, which was essential, I mean, apart from the fraud bit, which being a commercial lawyer you're always familiar with, uh, but taking me into company law, which I hadn't been familiar with until then. Yeah. You're a recorder, a part-time judge, um, and you sat in Wales, I think, as a recorder, um, but then you're invited to become a High Court judge in 1996 at a relatively young age of 49. Um, how did that happen? You didn't have to apply and fill out a, an application form. No, I've lived through the happy stage until recently uh, of avoiding all of that. Um, what happened was there, the, um, there was... Once I was... In 1984, I was asked to be a recorder. Someone wrote me a letter, I found it the other day, which asked me to become a recorder. You know, said, would you like to be one? Which is not something that happens these days. And uh, you then went off in a training course. You were an assistant recorder, so if you were no good, they didn't have to renew you. Um, and um, there, there were, there were, the Royal Chancellor's Department employed someone who would travel around the country taking what are officially known as secret soundings. And so they built up quite a, I would, either an accurate or an inaccurate picture, one I have no way of knowing of you. And then in, um, 
in the um, autumn of 1995, I got a call one day saying that the Lord Chancellor would like to see me. And so down I went to see him, met by his um, permanent secretary, uh, who then told me what it was for and ran through what they wanted me to do. And then I saw the Lord Chancellor. And Lord then, Mackay. Lord Mackay. Mm. And then uh, got the job. I mean, it's very, very different, whether it's um, uh, a system that um, uh, worked. I think it did work pretty well then, but I don't think you could have such a system today. Uh, but th- but it, wa- it was dependent upon a very high degree of trust and confidence. Uh, and um, you were then given a period of time to dig yourself out of your practice uh, which normally required you to tell people that you couldn't do future cases. And when they asked you why, you said you couldn't tell them. But it became pretty clear what had happened. And then I started in January 1996. So you then do QB work. You do, you're in the commercial court, but you also go out on circuit. Um, and then you become the presiding judge on the Wales and Chester circuit. And I think that's when I first met you down in Cardiff mm-hmm. about devolution. And you then become senior presiding judge, um, president of the Queen's Bench Division, and of course, Lord Chief Justice. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to draw that to an end because we're over time, but do you want to comment on any of that? I think it's been. <clears throat> I think it's been a very interesting job. It, it, um, I've, I've been, I think, can't help emphasising two things. One is luck, because I happened to be in Wales when devolution came about um, and saw it through its phases. I was made senior presiding judge about three weeks before um, there was the event which led to the resignation of Lord Irvin. So I saw the whole of the constitutional change then occurring. And I had the benefit of, of when, when I was a judge, of learning a lot, of, of having, being able to sit in many different jurisdictions. And I think it's been a very... I, I've just been very lucky. I've had a, a very varied career. And I think one of the most interesting things about it is one's been able to do an awful lot of sort of different kinds of law. And I hope made it make, in some small way, a contribution to the way our law has developed. And also, probably much more importantly, to trying to make the system run better um, because I do think that most judges have a deep commitment to public service and to making sure that justice actually is delivered and works, even if we don't have much money to do it with. If I can well, add that little bit at the end. Lord Thomas, thanks very much indeed. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm going to throw it open to questions. Um, And I think I'll probably take three in a row, um, but we'll see how we go. And I can see one hand here. I can only see one hand so far. Um, Let's start over there. And maybe you can tell us who you are for the purposes of the recording. My name's Geoffrey Forrest. I'm an alumnus of this uh, institution. I'm a solicitor and a Law Society Council member. Uh, Lord Thomas, you... uh, referred to the necessary skills or the different skills in dealing with litigants in person, uh, that would appear to be, I suggest, a skill that's going to be much in demand from now on because of the uh, reduction in legal aid. I'm not sure if that's a comment or a question, but it's meant to be a question. I I think it is is a skill. 
First of all, I have great sympathy for an observation that Lord Atkin once made, that a lot of law is like medieval magic. Um, We make it very difficult for people to understand. And secondly, I think we underestimate the difficulty of asking people to construct a proper and logical presentation. And it is a skill that you have to learn. I was very lucky in the sense that I saw a lot of litigants, you know, with with day-to-day problems at the Islington Legal Advice Centre. And I think learning to listen um, and then finding an answer is actually not... It's quite a skill, and it is something we have to hone these days. Now, I agree with you. Right, thanks very much. Down the front. Uh, Lord Thomas, I don't know whether your career took you into this area, but it seems to me that the system of appointing the judge to hear a particular case is opaque, and that barristers have a very good idea indeed about which judge or judges is likely to favour the proposition to be put forward on behalf of their client. And the judges, having been barristers, also know So I'm wondering whether it might be better if judges had no say whatever in which judge was going to hear a case and possibly even make it completely random as long as the pool had judges with the right expertise. Thanks very much. Are there any other questions while there's one here? Okay, Edmund, student at uh, King's College, LLM. Uh, I would like to ask, uh, is there anything you have done, you think you have done wrong in life that you would be doing it differently? Oh, okay. <laughs> Let's take one more. Is there one more we can have? Anyone up? Oh, look, sorry, up here. Um, uh, I, <clears throat> I, I understand that... Um, identify yourself. Pardon? Uh, Can you identify who you are? Um, my, my name's Aman Ali. I'm, I'm from Birkbeck College. I'm an undergraduate. Yeah, I've thanks. worked in education formally. Um, I, I understand that, that law in this country is, is set by Parliament, which can do what it likes, and the precedent of judges and um, members of the, the legal community do not comment on, on parliaments and vice versa. Uh, and that that goes towards the body of law. Uh, with reference to that, I, I'd just like to ask um, Lord Thomas whether he thinks it's in the nature of, of justice for there to be a central focal point of um, of uh, public um, uh, public uh, opposition to to the laws of Parliament, and, and whether that should should have been kept as Parliament Square. Right, thanks very much. Right, well, the allocation of judges. I take the view our system on the whole works very well. It doesn't work on the basis you allocate a judge to a case uh, to produce a particular answer. There are two basic methods. There's first the method, which is the method pursued in the States and Germany, which is completely random allocation. Um, That, I don't think, works well, because it saves clients huge amounts of money to get a judge who knows the subject. There is nothing... I do remember when I was um, in the commercial court, 
doing a case about how the Lloyd's market worked. And I remember the, the clients being utterly horrified uh, when the commercial judge asked the question, now tell me, when uh, the leading underwriter subscribed to the slip, uh, does he take it round the room and to the other uh, underwriters? And of course, everyone who does insurance knows that's the broker's job. And the clients had lost confidence. They thought this, they'd be before a judge who didn't know the first thing about their market. And you can get the same thing replicated where you have a judge who doesn't actually understand anything about medicine. Um, or you can, and so I think that there is a huge advantage in selecting someone who knows about the case. But we have strict rules to ensure two things. One, generally speaking, we make certain that one person is not the person who does all the cases. This has gone wrong on some occasions, and it's always been a mistake. And I've tried to make certain that you, and I think all my colleagues try and make certain who decide on listing functions, that you get someone who just doesn't do one kind of case. And secondly, if someone does have an interest in it, he will recuse himself, and we've got very tough rules about that. And thirdly, um, you may find that there are judges, and there are inevitably judges, you know, there's a judge who'd be known as, you know, so-and-so, he gives them a lot, or so-and-so, he's very, you know, he doesn't sentence very hard. Um, and no doubt you would find people who are more sympathetic inherently to claimants than to defendants. But that's much less than it used to be. I'm not certain that judges, and judges' sentencing um, being much more flexible is now a thing of the past because of the tighter guidelines. So I think the advantages of specialisation and getting a judge who knows the law, particularly as you have counsel sometimes who are immensely specialist, is a very good idea. So I don't like, I mean, I would defend our system, and I was very pleased the other day when uh, talking to some German professors about our comparative systems for trials, and they thought that our system actually was very much better because you've got someone who knew what they were doing in large commercial cases, for example. You're asked to be, to confess? To, uh, yeah. to everything. Oh, yeah, of course you do. Um, the answer is obvious. I'm just trying hard to think at the moment. Yeah, one's given wrong advice. Um, one always, I think, any lawyer who tells you he's never given wrong advice, I would never believe what you've got to be is, again, lucky that when you give wrong advice, I'll give you an illustration in a moment. When you give wrong advice, um, you've got to um, uh, just hope it doesn't cause any loss. And... Um, I give you two contrasting cases. There was a, a case which went to the then House of Lords about um, uh, a young solicitor whose partner was away, and um, the client rang up and said, um, I want to speak to someone on the same level as a particular partner. Um, the receptionist understood that meaning the same floor, and she put him through to someone very inexperienced, and the result was a disaster. Uh, I remember coming back from lunch on one occasion, just before Christmas, to find my clerk had booked into my room uh, a conference um, where someone wanted to repudiate uh, a very large contract. And uh, I think the advice I gave was right. It certainly was beneficial to the clients because had they gone on with the contract, it would have been a financial disaster. I'm, you know, one has given, you know, you make mistakes in cases, uh, you put the wrong argument. Um, you know, there are lots of mistakes I've made. I've got no doubt about that. And you've just got to hope that they don't cause any loss. And that's the great difference. You know, the, the young solicitor who made the mistake, I felt very, very sorry for him. And up here, 
parliament and government and I'm a great believer in, uh, in actually a very, in judges having a very clear idea of their own fallibilities and their own limitations. And I do think there's a lot to be said for leaving political decisions uh, to, uh, the, um, to Parliament. And a, a system where you have uh, a ability of, an, of a legislature to reverse judicial decisions is on the whole right. I say on the whole because our parliamentary tradition has generally been um, that Parliament does not reverse things that are fundamental. If it started to do so, there is no doubt that we would have to have entrenched rights. Uh, whether, whether we actually need them at the moment, I'm not sure. We do have them to the extent in the Human Rights Act, but Parliament can, in fact, override them. But I don't see that what Parliament does at the moment as being very different to what it has always done, namely that if the courts decide something, say they get a... One might sort of look at the Burma case and say, well, that was wrong of the government to have reversed a decision in relation to compensation. But on the whole, it generally hasn't done that, and I think the tradition has continued in relation to the, human, to the uh, entrenched rights in the Human Rights Act, in that, broadly speaking, if the courts decide things, they generally, if they are right, although Parliament may not like it, they've generally gone along with it. And I think that, that one must balance our tradition, which is unbroken, really, of, of a balanced parliamentary democracy, to uh, constitutions where judges have huge power over political decisions. And I think one has to be very careful before we go down that route. I may be a bit conservative in that view, but I certainly, I just give one example. I've always thought, for example, on a very controversial topic such as abortion, we made the right decision in this country. It was dealt with democratically. I've never thought they did it right in the States by doing it by the Supreme Court. Um, and I think it's, 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 it's a very – and it's a problem we, we – there's not enough discussion about. So I thank you for your question. I hope I answered the question you asked me. Right. Well, we've got um, Professor Lacey, and then we've got someone else down here, and then we've got over here. Thank you both very much for a, a, a most fascinating conversation. Um, my uh, question really follows up the question about uh, – uh, litigants in person, but it actually turns out to connect with the previous connect, uh, question, your answer to it. Um, obviously, we have a, a, a certain kind of separation of, of powers and roles in this country constitutionally, and you've just given a very eloquent defence of that. But I just wondered, given what you, how you answered the question and your invocation of Lord Atkins, amusing but also very, very pertinent uh, description of some of the barriers that our legal system throws up procedurally in particular to, uh, to non-specialists in, in the courtroom, whether you think that the, the judiciary should be part of the conversation with government about how that's tackled. I mean, at the moment we've got, it seems to me, a bit of a standoff where we've got the legal profession saying you can't you know, you can't do this, it's going to uh, affect access to justice, which seems exactly right. But on the other hand, um, there doesn't seem to be any, you know, on the surface anyway, not very much of a conversation. And is it not the case that perhaps this question of the appropriateness of court and tribunal procedures is something that is very specifically within the expertise of the judiciary that we would want the judiciary to have some sort of input on? 
policy-wise. Thanks very much. Let's go down here, since the microphone is closer. Um, I am Joanna. I am a judge from Albania. Uh, my question is, if you could change something in the judiciary system in the UK, uh, what would be that? I mean, there might be many things, but what do you think that is the most important thing? Or if it is none, uh, thank you. Well, thanks very much, Judge Joanna. And there was someone down here. Yes. Uh, sorry, who was it? Okay, yep. So down here. Hi, I'm Tom Hawker from Downing College, uh, Cambridge. Um, I was wondering about economics or law. <laughs> law. <laughs> um, two of the two of the uh, things that you said. Um, first, that um, there's a benefit in judges having a particular expertise in an area of law um, in, in the kind of case that they've been appointed to. And secondly, the role of guidelines in um, reducing sentencing disparity. I was wondering whether it might therefore make sense to reduce disparity further by only having judges work on, in criminal cases who have a certain amount of experience uh, working in the criminal law. Right, thanks very much. Well, Professor Lacey, about... Access to justice and organisation of courts and... First of all, take, take the easy bit. Procedure. One of the things that we have actually now got uh, is actually most procedural rules are dealt with by a committee chaired by a judge. And these have worked tremendously well. I think uh, the one I know most about is the Criminal Procedure Rules Committee. And I keep on trying to... I mean, one of the things I was very glad to achieve this year, which will take me on to the second point, is to persuade the government to allow us to make rules in relation to extradition rather than putting it in the Act. And I always tell the government, I, my view is, and, and I always say, look, you do not want to fill an Act with the procedure because you'll never get it right, and trying to change an Act of Parliament is a tremendous problem because of parliamentary time. Now, that... that advocacy, which it really is, can only work if we have conversations with government. And now I can say something about Ross, if I may. And one of the great contributions that he has made is actually ease our discussions with both Parliament and, more particularly, with the executive. And it is very important that on these issues, which go to not issues of really, you know, criminal procedural rules aren't things, or civil procedural rules really aren't politics, but they are about making a court work, that we do have a lot of conversations about that. Uh, at the moment, uh, I'm very keen because of the, because what I think is very clear for the financial future of the um, state sector, there's not going to be a return to legal aid generosity of the past. I can't see that happening. Therefore, we have to look at <clears throat> how we actually, what should be the procedure in our courts? Should we go down, for example, in, in family law, a more inquisitorial role? Should we, in civil cases, look at the way the Financial Ombudsman Service deals with things? Should we uh, look at online dispute resolution? Uh, and in criminal law, have we got the adjustments between what you do in the Magistrates' Court and what you do in the Crown Court right? These are conversations we have to have, because... Although ultimately something like where do you try criminal cases is a political decision, um, there are consequences which I think we're better able to spell out. And so I do regard a conversation about these things as very important. Uh, uh, and I think that uh, as far as I can tell, all political parties are receptive, and certainly the civil services, to this, these kinds of discussion. Um, 
So I hope that answers that in your question. And then we have, when we meet judges from other countries, they are very, very young, and mostly they're female, compared with the old men in this country. But well, he's, have... a, he's answered my question for me, you see, <laughs> or hinted how I should answer it. I think yeah, what do you want to change? I, 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 well, what I'd like to change, I mean, it's very striking. I've spent quite a lot of time dealing with um, uh, European judiciaries, and it's always struck me that uh, very often the men have been in the minority at a meeting. And so reshaping our judiciary so that it is that we get people to come to it younger, that we diversify it, and uh, that uh, we have a position where we give better career opportunities. I, I would be against a career judiciary with people coming from law school straight into the judiciary. I don't think this works. Uh, but I do think there is much more we can do to helping people from whatever background to come. And that's, that, that's one change I'd like to make. And the second change I'd like to make is actually to give the judges much more influence about how we change and improve the system of justice. It really goes back to the first, que to the first of these series of questions. Because I think to harness the enthusiasm and skill of the judiciary is a much better way of reforming it than people who are not that experienced telling you how to do it. So those are the two changes. More diverse judiciary and uh, greater encouragement for the judiciary to be able to reform the way in which the courts work uh, with much greater freedom and also, I hope, uh, with a grudge major impetus to make things happen vastly more quickly than they currently do because we can't afford the delays that are currently occurring. And then Tom down here on guidelines and... My own view is that judges ought to, to do and be expert in um, two subjects at least. Um, I think it's not good for someone uh, to just do one thing for a very long period of time. Uh, and by and large, the High Court works in that way. Um, we do need... Um, people who may not, I myself, I, although I did a lot of, uh, dealt with a lot of criminals, uh, because a commercial practice inevitably means you will. That you, I never did any, apart from these very small cases I did when I started, I never did any jury trials. I, you know, sort of there's a large gap. But now I spend 50, 60% of my time doing it, uh, doing crime. And so I think it is very advantageous to have two different special... I think you, I'm, you might say, well, you should have five or six different things. I'm not sure that works, but I think you should do two different things. And I think uh, it, it, it is good for the judge and it's good for the law. I remember, uh, must be now 30 years ago, there's a very young uh, but eminent silk called Mr. Robert Alexander, who many would have thought was one of his finest advocates. And he sort of suddenly started to do cases about charter parties, and um, he'd never done them. And, you know, he would question a lot of the received dogma. And I think having someone who comes from the outside questions dogma. Uh, I'm always suspicious of someone says, well, this is what Moses said, we must do it this way. And I do mean Moses, not Sir Alan. Um, and uh, <coughs> therefore you have a questioning view of things. And so that is, I think, a great virtue, getting something inside. Guidelines, I think they're working pretty. They're, on the whole, we're beginning to get them right. It takes time. 
And I think it's been of great benefit. We're getting the, the appeal, the kind of appeal we now do in crime is, a much, more cl- is much easier on sentences where there are guidelines. We're coming to an end. Um, just a few more. I've got one over here, and I've got the uh, lady here, and then this chap here. Then we'll wrap it up. Hey, Valerie Mathis, I have a question and probably one of your more famous cases, and that is of Julian Assange. I was wondering if you could comment at all on it, and I'd be interested in hearing what you choose to say about it, if you can. Can I answer that one quickly? Because we have a golden rule uh, that broadly that, that we do not comment on our cases. Uh, A, it stops us saying what a wonderful decision we made, but B, uh, it stops us being asked questions about it. We we should really leave the judgment speak for itself. And in any event, in relation to that, I would never say anything because it's an ongoing matter. So I'm sorry to disappoint you. Uh, And then uh, we had... Yes, over here. Just wait for the microphone. Hi, Sarah Shine from Latitudes. Um, I'd like to ask what you think about the access of the layman to find out laws. Um, Nowadays, people seem to just rely on Google forums. Um, Yeah, I'll put it simply like that. Okay, thanks very much. And then down here, chat with the tie. Yep. Um, Will Moy. Um, uh, Forgive me, I'm not sure if this is a case you sat in, um, but... um, You mentioned that you felt that we were lucky in this country that abortion was decided by the legislature rather than the courts, in contrast to the US. And I was struck by the recent decision in Nick Clinton, where the Supreme Court held that it had the constitutional authority to to declare that... uh, a blanket ban on assisted suicide was incompatible with the European Convention on Human Rights. In contrast to the decision in Bland about 20 years earlier, where the court was very much pleading with Parliament to step up and make a decision and make law on assisted suicide, but certainly couldn't have gone that far because there wasn't a Human Rights Act. And I wondered if um, how you see the relationship between assisted suicide and abortion. Is there, is there a distinction between those topics? And if you can comment at all on, on that particular decision. So find you out about the law to start with. The, um, the one thing that uh, uh, the government is trying to do at the moment, and that is to make good law. Um, part of the problem is that our method of, of drafting and of consolidating a statute book hasn't really caught up with modern-day technology. Uh, We don't have a system where the law in a particular area can be consolidated into one statute. I mean, the Law Commission is about to undertake a major project, going back to sentencing, in consolidating our sentencing legislation into one single statute. And I think over time we have to move to that route. It's very difficult, but it has to happen. But the second difficulty is is that um, there are very few acts of Parliament which it is easy to read. The best modern act of Parliament, I think, is the Arbitration Act. It was a product of work by Lord Savile, 
I mean, I, I can't remember how much time he took, he took to do it, but that, that, if you want to read a modern act which tells you what the law is in relatively simple terms, it's that. And it was done because it was thought that if people were to use London arbitration, they ought to have the law set out in easy, relatively easy to understand terms, and it's worked. So it can be done, but it is very, very difficult. And the second problem is that a lot of our law is case law. Uh, one of the, um, I think, two interesting features that are currently occurring, one in quite a lot of procedure, we are now con- trying to consolidate those into rules or practice directions on the assumption that people won't read a long case, but you know what it says and you can summarise it in ten lines. It's much easier to put it into a practice direction because people won't read the case, but they might read ten lines. And the other change, which is a very major change, and I don't think we've yet understood this, is actually our ability to enable people to access justice through properly designed forms. If I may just explain that, one of the very complicated areas of law is the law relating to search warrants. It's very complicated because there are so many different powers in so many different acts. Uh, You can't expect policemen to have the time because they ought to be doing better things than to try and understand the different powers and what they have to tell judges. And so instead of reading lots of cases which tell you what you ought to do and what you shouldn't do, you try and consolidate that into a form. And maybe that is one way forward with online dispute resolution is you you, you forget how we did it in the past and we try and use the modern forms to do it. So I think there is a way through. It's going to be quite a challenge if I use that horrible word, but we, we, we do need to make law simpler. Right, and, well, look, thanks very much. Thanks to you, the audience, for coming along. Um, thanks I didn't to, answer his question. Which oh. I, did. uh, I will very briefly. I don't think it would be appropriate for me to comment on recent decisions of the House of Lords, but I'm old Supreme Court, but can I just say one thing? Uh, I do think it's very important to bear in mind that, that we have always developed uh, law in certain areas, and sometimes a court will take a view uh, that if Parliament won't, then to do justice, you do need to do so. But as regards the debate about Lickinson and Bland of those cases, uh, I'm afraid that is still a subject of intense political political judicial controversy, and I may well have to decide a case on this, so I prefer say nothing. Well, you got much more than I thought you'd get. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't get very much. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks very much to the audience for coming along. Um, Thanks for the questions. Thanks to the Law Department and the Legal Biography Project for inviting me to come and uh, interview, and thanks Michael and Linda in particular. Um, I'd encourage you to look at the website of the project um, on the Law Department, um, and you'll see the sort of work that's going on, the links with the British Library and so on. But in particular... Thanks to John Thomas, Lord Thomas, for giving his time up and for answering all those questions. Thanks very much. <laughs>